through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say And welcome to the 43rd edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, November 7th, 2019. This is Jenna, WLRN sound producer, loving women since 1987. This month's edition focuses on substance use and addictions. We'll hear an excerpt of an interview Thistle did with Renee Gerlich, feminist writer and activist from New Zealand. Renee talks about what an addiction is and how men's addiction to sexually exploiting women through violence can be combated. We also hear an interview segment did with Jen, a dyke from New York City who recently got off the sauce and into AA meetings. Jen talks about how trans culture and politics relies on addiction and addictive behaviors to exist. And in fact, it's being pushed on kids like cocaine was in the 1980s. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, here's Sekhmet with women's news from around the globe for this November 7th, 2019. Megan Murphy, feminist journalist and founder of the website Feminist Current, was confronted by an angry crowd of hundreds, protected only by police as she went to speak at the Toronto Public Library's Palmerston branch on October 29th. The National Post of Canada reported that it was mostly women who attended her 30-minute talk titled Gender Identity, What Does It Mean for Society, the Law, and Women? The event was organized by Radical Feminists Unite, a Toronto-based organization that says they are critical of the politics of transgenderism on their website. The decision to go forward with the Murphy talk was made by Toronto City Librarian Vickery Bowles. On October 17th, after many letters and calls to cancel the talk, She said the Toronto Public Library stands by its decision to rent the space to an organization featuring Murphy as a speaker. Trans activists continued their campaign to shut the talk down, with Sherry DeNovo, a longtime LGBTQ advocate and former Ontario legislator, stating, quote, this is transphobia, unquote, and, quote, it is not feminism because Murphy doesn't include trans women, unquote. There was also a Change.org petition started expressing disappointment and dismay over the Toronto Public Library's decision to host Murphy, calling for the library to cancel the event. The petition had over 8,600 signatures by the time the event took place. Note that a drag queen duo quit their regular gig at the library to show their disgust at the decision to host Murphy's 30-minute talk. Caleb Robertson, otherwise known as Fluffy of the duo Faye and Fluffy Storytime, released a statement on Instagram and announced that they will no longer be performing at Toronto Public Library, where he participated in Drag Queen Storytime. Cindy Sheehan, longtime peace and anti-war activist, was deplatformed from an anti-war event she was scheduled to speak at on October 5th in Carbondale, Illinois. Sheehan was on her way to the Rage Against the War Machine event in Washington, D.C., where she was also scheduled to speak. Trans activists complained to the organizers of the Carbondale event that Sheehan is transphobic and exclusionary, and so therefore she should be disinvited. The organizers, members of the Southern Illinois Peace Coalition, buckled under the pressure, and Sheehan did not speak at the event as previously planned. Sheehan's talk was called Stop the War Machine, Save the Planet, and the event, which was postponed indefinitely, was the Margie Parker Teach-In for Peace. The event organizer who announced the cancellation of the event 
on behalf of the Peace Coalition was Georgianne Hartzog. On September 22nd, she announced on the group's website, we are sad to report that due to an unrelated issue, the teach-in is indefinitely postponed. The organizers who deplatformed Sheehan explained to her that they didn't want to be divisive and that they could find another speaker who would not cause division and was not exclusionary. To hear in-depth coverage and commentary on this story, go to WLRN's WordPress site and click on the Interviews tab to find the interview Thistle did with Sheehan on October 20th, after Sheehan returned home to California. Feminists in Struggle, or FIST, launched a campaign to amend the U.S. Equality Act on October 19th. Anne Menashe, civil rights lawyer and member of FIST, explained to WLRN just what FIST's campaign and amendments are hoping to achieve. We uh, launched a campaign to support feminist amendments to the Equality Act. Uh, We think the current Equality Act has good points and very bad points, and we think it's much better to amend it uh, to protect everyone's rights rather than to defeat it. And so we are fighting for uh, our amendments that would protect gay gay and lesbian rights, would protect women's spaces, uh, women's programs, feminist programs, affirmative action, and also the uh, all gender nonconforming people would be protected whether they identify as transgender or not. To hear the full interview with Ann Menashe, go to WLRN's WordPress site and click on the Interviews tab. Jessica Yaniv, a man who identifies as a transgender woman, whose tribunal hearing sparked recent international headlines, had his claims dismissed last month in Canada. Furthermore, Yaniv has been ordered to pay $6,000 to the female employees of the wax parlor he visited for improper conduct. Yaniv's initial order for $500,000 in costs was ruled to be, quote, divorced from reality and reason, unquote. Yaniv, formerly Jonathan Yaniv, had taken seven estheticians to the tribunal after claiming they discriminated against him for refusing to wax his genitals. A previous complaint by Yaniv against two other waxers had also been dismissed. The difference this time around was tribunal member and adjudicator Devin Cosino determined there was a pattern of discrimination by Yaniv himself. Bogota, Colombia elected the city's first openly lesbian mayor at the end of October. Claudia Lopez of the Alianza Verde Party beat her male opponent by 2.7 percentage points. Claudia is the first out lesbian to be elected mayor of a capital city in Latin America. The bodies of two young black girls previously missing were found in two different states last month. Five-year-old Nevaeh Adams was murdered in South Carolina along with her mother, Cherie Bradley, who was found dead in their apartment back in August. Nevaeh was missing from the time of her mother's murder until she was found two months later. A man has been arrested and charged with both killings. Meanwhile, Camille McKinney, three years old, was taken from an apartment complex in Birmingham, Alabama, where she and her parents were attending a child's birthday party. Camille was found dead not long after her disappearance, and two people, a man and a woman, have been arrested and charged with her murder. A Tatiana Jefferson, a 28-year-old black American woman, was murdered by a white male police officer in Dallas, Texas, on October 14th. She was babysitting her 8-year-old nephew in her brother's home when a neighbor called the cops to do a welfare check on the house because of the open front door. Body camera footage taken from Officer Aaron Dean shows he fired his gun within mere seconds of seeing a Tatiana. According to Atatiana's nephew, she pulled out her own firearm just before she died, when they heard noises in the backyard. It is not confirmed Aaron Dean saw her weapon before shooting and killing her. Dean is being charged with murder. An unidentified 15-year-old Florida girl who has been missing for a year was found alive after her mother recognized her in dozens of pornographic videos available on the website Pornhub, along with sites Periscope, Model Hub, and Snapchat. Earlier this year, the girl was seen in the company of two adult men at a 7-Eleven, caught on the surveillance camera, and also reported by the store clerk. That footage eventually led police to the male kidnapper's car and to the victim. The 30-year-old man identified as the girl's escort and owner of the vehicle, who was also depicted in many of the pornographic videos featuring the girl, has been arrested and charged with a felony. The girl has returned to her family. That concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, November 7th, 2019. I'm Sekhmet Shiawal. If you have news stories and tips you want to share with us, please send them to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com.
That was Fleetwood Mac with their song, Gold Dust Woman. Next up, we'll hear excerpts of an interview Thistle did with Renee Gerlich, feminist writer and activist living in New Zealand. Renee talks about what an addiction is and how men's addictions harm women. So it's great to have you on. I saw online that you've been reading about this very topic of our podcast uh, for this month, which is substance use and addictions. So I jumped at the chance to be able to ask you some questions about some of your studies and what you've been, been learning. And the first question I have for you is, what is an addiction? Because most people, when they hear the word addiction, they think of drugs and alcohol, but really it can encompass much more than that. Yeah, so some of the most um, enlightening reading that I've been doing um, comes from, for instance, a woman called Harriet Lerner, who's written an amazing book, which I think should be like compulsory reading, um, and it's called The Dance of Anger. 
And in that book, she actually talks about dysfunctional uh, relationship patterns, particularly in, in what she calls your first family, so among your you know, siblings and parents. And when she writes about this and how these patterns operate, it's basically uh, according to the same principle as addiction. So I feel like the more I've read about this topic, the broader the definition kind of gets. But there's this renowned um, specialist, uh, he's a doctor and, and specialist on addiction um, called Gabor Mate, who's written a book called When the Body Says No. And his definition, to paraphrase, is basically that um, addiction is an adaptation to circumstances that you can't tolerate and you can't change. So... Um, that can mean, you know, taking substances to numb pain. But it can also mean things like, you know, always making sure that you're smiling um, even when you're raging inside because so as not to make other people uncomfortable because you've learned that if you appear to be anything other than smiling, um, there might be consequences for that. So, um, yeah, so it's... And and when these writers talk about addiction, most of them that I've read talk about it beginning in, in childhood when your nervous system is still actually developing. That's when you and so um so it is also about the roles that you learn to play and actually have difficulty not playing or feel uncomfortable, you know, and being more honest you know, when you feel more uncomfortable being more honest with yourself because you fear the consequences. Things like that are all tied up, I think, with um, what addiction is um, in essence. Mm -hmm. So it's possible to be addicted to smiling a lot because that protects you from having to feel your real feelings and also for your re real feelings possibly provoking others around you to to give you a negative response so it's not just addictions to substances and alcohol that we're talking about here but it's like addictiveness some sort yeah. of um yeah coping mechanism yeah. so um, yeah like um the book i'm reading at the moment is called women sex and addiction um by charlotte um castle and she writes um, at some point she writes, and the essential source of all addiction is a spiritual emptiness, a hunger for purpose, and a connectedness to life. So something that happens um, and something that happens um, early on that uh, a lot of these writers discuss is the very first messages that you get in early childhood that something about yourself is not okay so therefore that you have to suppress that and replace it with some kind of um, acceptable learned behavior and you do that in order to stay connected because obviously when you're um, in your earliest years disconnection is extremely uh, threatening and uh, life-threatening so these that that's how a lot of our um, uh, adaptations become so ingrained and scary to change because um, we learned very early on um, that the consequences would be more than we can bear. I found um, Charlotte's definition is quite broad, like when she says the essential source of all addiction is a spiritual emptiness and a connectedness to life. It's quite a profound um, definition. Yeah. So obviously men's addictions impact um, women quite a bit with the uh, development of like prostitution and pornography fueled by men's addiction to control and dominate in, in sexual ways and violent ways. What are the implications for women of men's addictions? Um. Yeah, so I uh, a lot of the reading that I've been doing is because I'm very interested in this relationship between um, addiction and gender and feminism. And so, yeah, these, these institutions and industries of prostitution and pornography 
Um, they're based upon addiction, as we know. Um, they're based upon, uh, um, you know, men and boys then from very early on in childhood being um, encouraged to disconnect from themselves, from their humanity, um, and instead identify with these models of masculinity and dominance, um, which encourage them to fetishize violation, and especially the violation of women, which is what fuels the porn and prostitution industries, but it's all connected to a gender norm um, of masculinity. Obviously, these industries are not aberrations. They're not, you know, the way that addiction is often thought of as this kind of neurological disorder, but when you look at it in terms of gender, you know, the norm of masculinity is reflected in in, in porn, which is also based on addiction, and, and these are cultural phenomena that affect all of us. Um, and so the corollary for women is that, of course, um, these industries affect us because they violate us um, and because they rely on us being um, part of, you know, being a supply, being um, a sexually subservient or sexually available um, for, for men, for men's use. Um, but also, obviously, pornography promotes this, these ideas of women as sexually subservient and as enjoying being violated, which is what femininity, in essence, um, is as a norm, which we're taught from girlhood to, um, to um, absorb in order to be seen as acceptable. Um, and this is obviously, you know, this is something that Mary Daly talks about in, um, in her writing when, when she talks about the, the self at, with a capital S as something that women are dis disconnected from and, and need to uh, reconnect to, which is also what Gabo Mate talks about when he talks about addiction. He talks about reconnecting with the self, um, which is, I mean, this is the, the trauma that ultimately happens to all of us. Early on, because of these cultural norms, we are encouraged to disconnect from ourselves and instead play these roles of masculinity and femininity. And so, yeah, we're all confined in this cycle of violation and addiction. Um, it's just that for some of us, um, the violations um, are, are much more uh, extreme and um, manifest. So, the, the numbing of the pain will, will be through things like um, alcohol and drug uh, use. But um, for others of us, the, the numbing of the pain might be in more benign forms of, of denial um, and acquiescence among women. But um, the challenge, some of the challenges uh, are still um, echo each other um, and are based on the same principle of recovering the self. Mm -hmm. And how can women recover that self with a capital S and fill the void and soothe the pain without falling into addictions? How can women overcome addiction? Um, that's something that I just have uh, clues about rather than advice about. Um, so, and I, yeah, the clues that I've connected from the different books that I've read um, involve, um, for instance, depersonalizing. I think one of the main lessons of feminism is to depersonalize the things that have happened to us. So as women... Even though, you know, we're half the world's population, when you look at the trends of how we're each being affected by patriarchy, that n none of us, what we're experiencing is unique. Like, um, that's uh, quite absurd. It would be quite absurd to think that. Yet somehow, actually quite ingeniously, um, each of us individually has been trained to think about and to believe to store this shame, this is what happens 
what violation does is it, and and what um, disconnection from the self does is it makes us ashamed and that feels something very personal there's something about us that's not acceptable and this that that um, mechanism is so is so effective that we all walk around in a sense feeling like we're alone because we're defective and so I think what feminism does is it puts a context around these the violations of um, gender and patriarchy that help us take that first step of um, depersonalizing the situation so that we can look at it, uh, our own um, pain and our own um, challenges a bit more objectively. Um, and so Andrea Dawkins in her book Our Blood, uh, I mean I learned to do this from her and through her book Our Blood where she she makes the point um, quite repeatedly through the book about um, she says things like female masochism is real and must be destroyed. Um, I know that some feminists don't like the, the concept of masochism, but you know what she means is that we need to unlearn this habit of um, personalizing things, um, both as for ourselves and as a political. Um, imperative um, yeah so that's one thing which of course doesn't take you all the way and then one of the things that um, Gabor Mate for instance in his, his book The Body Says No and also Harriet Lerner in her book The Dance of Anger they both encourage people very much to listen to our bodies and particularly our guts um, which I think is, is also easier to do once you've depersonalized um, the shame that 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 you have. Um, but so yeah, Gabor Gabor Mate Harriet Lerner talks about anger, um, and both of them talk about stress as being, um, you know, your body is speaking to you and could be speaking to you about a boundary violation. Um, and so when we suppress that. Um, then that's when <laughs> uh, bad things happen. Um, and so we need to use uh, different practices, perhaps meditation, um, to find ways to listen to our bodies again and pay attention um, to the things that trigger us towards anger or irritability and not um, stigmatize those feelings but take them as, as, a, a, as a warning um, from our bodies. Um, there's actually this passage, and can I read a passage from Gabor Mate's book about this? Yes, please. Um, so he's actually got these amazing chapters about uh, how, why he 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 says that he wondered as a doctor at some point why there's these like autoimmune diseases that why the immune system the human immune system would ever attack itself and how mysterious that is as a response of any kind um of a of a you know of a of a human being to its environment and because his whole concept is based on addiction as as an adaptation and uh and illness as um and its relationship to stress he writes this, this passage. He goes, um, for anger to be deployed appropriately, the organism has to distinguish between threat and non-threat. The fundamental differentiation is to be made, oh, to be made is between self and non-self. If I don't know where my own boundaries begin and end, I cannot know when something potentially dangerous is intruding on them. The necessary distinctions between what is familiar or foreign and what is benign or potentially harmful require an accurate appraisal of self and non-self. Anger represents both a recognition of the foreign and dangerous and a response to it. So basically what he starts to say is that when we don't listen to our anger, we ignore our own boundaries and in a sense, the body stops being able to differentiate 
between the external threat and the self and the organism. <laughs> Does that make sense? The external threat being something that is actually real and then the internal being something that get, builds up through time and is not it's not necessarily a real threat. Well, the thing I think the thing that it speaks to for me is femininity itself and the lesson that you have to constantly accommodate constantly accommodate that which you can't actually tolerate for instance a lot of men's behavior and if you if you I mean to a large extent women women can't control men's behavior but if we if we do comply with this role not that it's our fault but one one implication of that is that when you constantly accommodate behavior that you can't actually tolerate then you do become an enemy to yourself, which is partly what causes uh, illness. Um, so the if if you're not setting a boundary and you're not protecting yourself or you're not able to protect yourself, um, then one thing the body starts to do, according to Gabor Mate's analysis, is stop being able to distinguish between where the self ends and where the threat begins because it's been internalized and that you know its demands and its messages are being accommodated in the self so basically what i think this message does for me is reaffirm the physiological um importance that of the of boundary setting which is obviously a key message of feminism that gabel mate talks uh, talks about this all the way into um yeah the way that um not not setting boundaries means that stress stores in the body and then the body uh becomes ill yeah well thank you so much for talking on this topic and is there anything else you'd like to say to our wlrm listeners about substance abuse and addiction i think maybe uh one one other thing would be uh, Steph Hughes, Stephanie Hughes. She recently did a a really good talk um, in Brisbane on the importance of female only spaces for recovery. I think that's definitely worth watching in relation to this topic as well. Great. Could you send us a link and we could put that a link to that in the write up? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Renee. Thank you.
That was Wise Up from Amy Mann. Now we turn to an interview Sekhmet did with Jen, a New York City dyke who talks about her experiences with trans ideology growing up and how it feels like a drug being pushed on young people. It's really likely that for a lot of women, and even underage girls, that drinking or using drugs or both is a way of coping with female existence and and just all of the bullshit that goes along with that. So do you think it's even possible for women to, for the most part, avoid getting wrapped up in substances as a coping mechanism? Do you think that it's possible for women to live in the world that we live in and not end up abusing something to cope? I'm sure it is possible. Uh, the, The first thing that came to mind is like, strict helicopter parents and that like never let them go anywhere or something but is it possible for un- for young women to go throughout the world without getting into drugs and alcohol yeah i, I think addicts are like not everyone's an addict um right i, I guess it's possible but it-, it all depends on the person too like sometimes it's peer pressure but uh, sometimes you're just you're in need of of some fulfillment, and you're not getting it at home or uh, in school. Or I guess it depends on on the girl's uh, on what she's doing and what activities she's engaging in or what she likes to do. I think for me, the fact that I was so angry at being born a female. Um, I don't think everyone experiences that, but I think like someone, I think some of, or most of us experience it to a degree because of like gender constructs and societal expectations of women and whatnot. But I think, um, I just had all this unexplainable anger and I, I mean, it was explainable to me. Like it was just hard to articulate because not no one was talking about this issue like now it's all everyone talks about this trans stuff um but the, when i was growing up it was just like my little secret and i and now that it, it i never imagined i could never it, if you were to go back in time and meet me and, and told me that this was happening i'd be like whoa <laughs> you know like this was like my little secret and now it's like such a huge fad <laughs> um like it, and it's it's like the new toy really like when kids are just like oh mommy i don't like my nose can we get rid of it or <laughs> i don't want to be a, a girl anymore can we just you know take care of that <laughs> it's like uh these these people on youtube uh like calvin gara and and his friends i don't know if you're familiar with these people but they're like you know so open about their disgust about their bodies and their faces and the way they look and like when kids watch this stuff i mean kids are already going through that and they're going to watch people that you know have the money or just the privilege to go out of their way and and get surgery done on you know it's just out of control at this point, um, I think, uh, yeah, it is possible, but not for for everybody. I mean, it depends on on the environment, I guess, and and the parents. But as we can see, there's a lot of uh, negligent parents out there, <laughs> right, willing to fulfill this superficial need for either them or the kid. So, I don't know. For me, I was always angry at at the idea that, uh, you know, that I would eventually stop growing and uh, I would never get as strong and and tall as, you know, some dude. (laughs) So I guess drugs and alcohol sort of like numbed those feelings. 
Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen Fight Club? Yeah. I there's, liked it. Scene at the end. And like this isn't and this is like what I want to point out. Like it's not just like the cult. I think it's just everybody, but he's like he asks Brad Pitt, like, why do people think that I'm you? And he goes, Take a you know, can you I think you already know. And he figures it out, like, oh, we're the same person. And he's, he goes, yeah, I'm everything you want to be. Or what does he say? Like, all the things that you'd like to be, I'm that. It's not just women desiring to be men or men desiring to be women. It's men desiring to be other men. <laughs> women right. desiring to be other women. Right. So... <laughs> I, I guess it's just more common than you realize. And uh, I guess it's great that we're all talking about it now, as opposed to just sweeping everything under the rug like we used to and just pretending it's not happening. Um, he's like, yeah, all the ways you wish you could be, that's me. I look like you want to look. I fuck like you want to fuck. I am smart, capable, and most importantly... I'm free in all the ways that you are not. So like that line used to resonate with me because I viewed men as more free than I was. And I guess it's true. Um, and I, I would say it's true. Yeah. Envy. <laughs> so does that make me just the standard woman who's envious of men and their freedom and their privileges? Or is, or is there like some deeper, like, I need to go get a phalloplasty. Like, what? <laughs> like, silicone testicles and all that. Like, cut off my arm skin. Like, no. <laughs> I, yeah. I guess all this time, I'm thinking I'm like, oh, I, I used to be or what, you know, trans. But I'm just, I think this is more common to the average woman than, than we actually realize. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I think different women deal with that envy in different ways. And for the average heterosexual woman, it's like that envy and maybe even that anger um, is generally pretty muted. Like it's it's something that they bury pretty pretty far down. And in my observation, the way they deal with it is they try to sort of, they try to sort of latch on to men in a sexual context to try to access whatever they can access through the man that they're with, which doesn't actually, it's, it's nothing like, you know, it's not like the real thing. It's not like being male, but like, (laughs) that's sort of the way they deal with it because they're following all of the rules of being a woman, even though they're not necessarily enjoying it. (laughs) Um, This made me think of um, a character in Orange is the New Black. She was like the warden or something. And she was like the cat, the trans character came up in conversation and she was like, why would a man ever want to be a woman? That's like winning the lottery and giving away all the money. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) When she was a straight woman, you know, but, you know, she was well off enough. Like she had a pretty good job, but I guess she had to do a lot of shit that she didn't want to do to get it. I don't know. But... (laughs) I'm reading, I'm trying to finish Female Chauvinist Pigs, and they talk about, um, she talks about how women, and, and I, th- I think we need to, like, get away from constantly comparing everything to slavery and stuff like that, but there's a, there's a point in the book when she's explaining, like, what an Uncle Tom is, and then, like, comparing uh-huh. that, like, what women, like, women are Uncle Tomming their way to the top. Is, is what she was saying in, in one of these chapters. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. Speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know you. I want to hear your real voice. I want to hear your real voice. 
This. 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 This is WLRN. 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 Women's Liberation Radio News. Women's Liberation Radio News. Women's Liberation Radio News. Women's Liberation Radio News. when I smoked my first joint, and was around 12 years of age when I first got offered cocaine. I said no to the cocaine, and it seemed silly that I chose to smoke back then and continue to struggle with quitting smoking cigarettes to this day. I've watched my nephews and niece grow up, and when they reach the age I started smoking, I feel horrified that I was so young when I started. When I ruminate on what I was feeling way back then, I'm sure it wasn't that I would have liked to become a lifelong addict of nicotine, but rather thought this was what my people did. This is what bad people did, and I always knew I was different than a normal kid. Or rather, I always knew my family was different from other families. We didn't live in abject poverty, nor were we social outcasts due to religion or race. I felt ashamed because we had a secret that was desperate to be told, and one which can never be uttered. That sexual assault was rampant in my family. My mother was our primary caregiver and an incest survivor. The continual sexual abuse she suffered from her father was undoubtedly the traumatic experience that led to her dissociation from her body. As a baby and then child growing up, I didn't and couldn't understand that it wasn't me that was wrong. As an adult, I understand fully that it had nothing to do with me and that my mother's unwillingness to be present in her own body was the survival strategy she developed when she herself was a child. But for me, as a baby and then child growing up, I took my mother's distance to mean that I wasn't right. I'm acutely aware that my life could have been very different if I had said yes to cocaine that time when I was 12, or any other time I could have used substances to ease my pain. Instead, at the ripe age of 12, I tried to control what was happening to my mind and my body by developing anorexia. When I decided some things weren't altogether right in my life later that year, I enrolled myself into counseling services and stuck with it for four years while it remained free of charge. Life hasn't been easy since that time, however. I still suffer from anxiety, depression, and for most of my life I've had the added burden of insomnia but it hasn't been complicated by the use of substances. Intergenerational trauma cannot be overstated when we discuss the reasons for substance use. Breaking the connection women have with their bodies and communities is a violation that ripples down from generation to generation. I came to learn as an adult that our family maybe wasn't so special at all. These aren't just truths for some women. But many children suffer the effects of having their mother's body violated at the hands of the men in their lives. Indigenous women are violated further with the intersection of racism. The effects of the residential school system that sought to kill the Indian save the man, as John A. MacDonald so infamously said, has left many First Nation communities broken and fraught with the use of substances. Indigenous women, like many non-Indigenous women who use substances, often turn to illegal activities to be able to afford the substances that ease their pain. They are then doubly punished by being thrown into the incarceration system. Although making up only 4% of our national population, Indigenous women make up over 30% of the incarcerated women in Canada. We, as Canadians, are criminalizing multi-generational trauma victims instead of addressing why it is that so many women turn to substances to ease their suffering. Now as an adult, I've spent many years as a crisis worker at a women's centre. There as well, the needs of women who use substances were often ignored. In fact, women with addictions were previously turned away from our services. Thankfully, an approach known as harm reduction allows women to use substances and still seek the resources, supports, and brief respite from the horrors of homelessness that women who don't use substances have been afforded the past 30 years or so. 
Once as a shelter worker, I remember a discussion I had with a woman who had her children taken away from her due to substance use. She was 24 at the time she recounted her story, and 16 the first time she ever used an opioid. She told me that when she used, it was the first time she ever felt normal. Throughout the rest of the conversation, normal in this context was understood to mean okay in her skin. My heart broke that day and many days since. It was a stark realization that there was no immediate services inside or outside the agency I worked for that could ever address that which is so fundamental to a healthy, basic human experience, that of connection. Everything I could offer her was secondary to it. I came to see the opposite of addiction, not sobriety, but rather connection and feeling okay in our own bodies. It used to be a commonly held belief that a person who uses substances had to hit rock bottom before they were ready for change. But what about this culture? This culture has hit rock bottom when it puts the priorities of corporations above its citizens and the land base that sustain us. This culture has hit rock bottom when it allows the violation of children and women who lack the political, social and financial power to adequately defend ourselves. And there continues to this day the belief that if some people can manage their lives without the use of substances to ease their pain and suffering, then all humans should do it. If this were to be true, it would stand to reason that a woman who uses has chosen to lose her job, access to safe and affordable housing, her family support system, and more times than not, her own children. The illusion that this is a lifestyle she has chosen absolves this culture of bearing any of the responsibility. Undoubtedly, the sexual assault I experienced as a child, along with my mother's own dissociation, led me to not feeling comfortable in my own skin. Today, as a survivor of these violations, I lose sleep thinking about the crimes committed against children through the gender ideology movement. When society tells a child they are born in the wrong body, we make their dissociation absolute, which paves the way for predators to molest the very core of our most vulnerable population. In effect, we as a culture are saying that corporations' right to violate children supersedes the child's right to live trauma-free. We are creating addicts. There has been some great progress, however, into shifting the recovery times from short-term to longer-term services. To address the need for culturally appropriate recovery services for Indigenous women who would otherwise not have their needs addressed. But these facilities are few and far between, and long wait times are a very serious barrier for many women. In order for our culture to adequately address addiction, we must first properly diagnose the disease. As feminists, it is incumbent upon us to root out the causes of patriarchal injustices and lay bare the violation imperative that stops us from connecting to one another, but first and foremost to ourselves. It is a prime tenant of feminism to say no to this culture. No, you cannot violate women and children with impunity. No, it's not your body that is the problem, it is this culture. No, you cannot rape the land, water, trees, insects, and all other life forms. And no, you cannot disconnect us from our bodies any longer. Because it is through our connection to ourselves that all other meaningful, healthy connections take place. Thanks for listening to WLRN's 43rd edition podcast on substance use and addictions. I'm Thistle Pedersen. Join us next month when we'll be talking about Las Feministas y el Feminismo de México, or Feminists and Feminism from Mexico. I will be speaking with Laura González of the organization Feministas Mexicanas Contra Vientres de Alquiler, or Mexican Feminists Against Surrogacy. That show is coming out on Thursday, December 5th, so look for it in early Diciembre. WLRN would like to thank our guests this month for sharing their views on substance use and addiction. 
Thank you so much to Renee Gerlich and Gen Z for speaking with us. This is Sekhmet Shiawal. Thanks for tuning in to WLRN. If you like what you're hearing and would like to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the Donate button. Check out our merch tab to get a nice gift in exchange. There are many ways to support our Feminist Community Radio station online. If you're interested in joining our team or becoming a volunteer, we are always looking for new media enthusiasts to conduct interviews, write blog posts, post to our Facebook and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Thanks for listening. This is Danielle Whitaker signing off for now. And I am April Nell. Thanks for tuning in. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when our podcasts, music shows, and interviews are released, please sign up for our newsletter on the WLRN WordPress site. Stay strong in the struggle, and thanks for listening. This is Jenna DeQuarto signing off on another edition of WLRN's monthly handcrafted podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Spinster, SoundCloud, and Spotify, in addition to our WordPress site. Our monthly handcrafted podcasts are always made with tender, loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. We would love to hear from you, so please share, like, and comment widely. Until next time, dear sisters. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? shown and then after that where is home tell me where is my home cause gender hurts